Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Our guest today on Think Humanities podcast is Jeff Baggett from down in uh, West Kentucky in Cadiz, Kentucky. Uh, Jeff is one of our uh, speakers in our Speakers Bureau. Um, he is uh, in his day job, not a, um, a Revolutionary War historian, uh, but uh, a pastor, uh, And but he has uh, taken a, a real liking to the Revolutionary War, and we thought it fitting since we're in the time period of the 4th of July and the big celebration of across the country and won't be too long before we're even celebrating a, a bigger holiday, uh, a bigger anniversary uh, coming up in a few years. But Jeff, welcome to Think Humanities. Well, thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. Tell us about uh, your presentation and uh, I'm going to ask you first, if you will, uh, what really led you to uh, your interest in the Revolutionary War and, and where it has taken you? Well, um, Gosh, what, what led to my interest was my discovery many years ago of a Revolutionary War ancestor. I, I, I never thought that I could find something like that in my family tree, and uh, I'd, I'd had some brick walls in my ancestry. And then I had a breakthrough, and I discovered that first ancestor, and it led me to seek membership in the Sons of the American Revolution. And Man, I just got I got into it. I, I got my first uh, uniform for color guard and started dressing for events and and going to living history events. And I mean, I just became, I guess my, my wife kind of picks on me. She thinks I'm a little bit obsessive about the Revolutionary War period sometimes. But that's just how I fell in love with the time period. There's there. It's just so it's so uniquely American. And it's so deeply patriotic and, and the history is so raw and real. And so I just I, I fell in love with it, and I've, I've been been hyped on it ever since. It's what I do in my spare time. It's my hobby and my my passion. Well, I would say it's not a bad thing uh, to be uh, so excited about uh, uh, what uh, this country went through and what we did, and the ancestors uh, that uh, many of us share uh, the stories. Um, it's also such an important period of history that. Uh, Jeff, you may run into people, um, certainly uh, I'm not, um, don't mean to generalize uh, and, and be critical, but I'll, I'll just bet there's not as many people today that know of our history and, and what some parts of Western Kentucky went through when it has to do with the Revolutionary War. Right. No, well, you'd be shocked. Um, and I think it's kind of okay to generalize a little bit because I, I am blown away sometimes uh, just in my encounters with the public, uh, at how few people know anything at all about the period, you know, just period. It, there, there's a misconception I fear among a, a lot of our citizenry that that American history began at the Civil War, which is really odd to me. It's really strange. I'm not sure where all that, you know, what the root of that is. I sometimes worry about, you know, the emphasis that's placed upon upon that period in, in education today. I I did a program one time. For instance, I, uh, in a school, I can't remember where I was, but uh, it was for an eighth grade group, and I had a student walk up to me, and I was wearing a full-on continental uniform. I mean, just the, the blue and red 
straight up continental with my great big huge tricorn hat on and this little boy i think a ninth grader walked up to me and asked me which side was i on the north or the south <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah both i guess you know um but yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion a lot you know uh, folks just don't know that much about the period that's why it's so much fun uh being a part of hopefully the solution to that helping educate some on the period in, in kentucky kentucky most folks didn't you know when i talk to kids they don't realize that there was you know we had a revolutionary war conflict within the borders of what is now kentucky no one knows about the the siege that was at at Fort Jefferson down in far western Kentucky, right on the Mississippi River. And I've had a lot of fun introducing that to people. I'm not an expert on that by any means, but I know the guy who is, Dr. Ken Carstens, is a, a retired professor uh, of archaeology from Murray State. And he's a Facebook buddy of mine, and we, we talk often. And, and he's been involved in the digs there and locating that. And that's kind of been his passion. And that's kind of where I, where I fell in love with that and that topic and trying to introduce that to people across the Commonwealth. Uh, Jeff, tell us about the ancestor that you discovered uh, in your family and how you, was that an intentional discovery or is that something that you just stumbled on? Tell me a little bit about that. And I want to sort of lead into how other people uh, that are listening to our podcast uh, could, could do the same thing and what they might find in their family tree. Well, actually, I guess at the moment I, I stumbled. Uh, of course, my last name is, is Baggett. It's not a really common last name, but we kind of joke in the Baggett family that our ancestors, they were either hiding from the census man or they shot him when he was coming down the road or something. Uh, they, 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 they're, they're hard to find, but I, I stumbled across on another line just exploring, just using Ancestry.com, and, and I discovered uh, something in my uh, paternal grandmother's line uh, Benjamin Hollinshead, um, I think he was out of North Carolina. They kind of blend together now, but and I just discovered that record, and it kept me digging. I'm I'm proud to say now, though, uh, with a lot of ancestry research, I've I've discovered and proven 23 patriots in my family tree. Wow. And yeah, yeah, and not all were soldiers. Some some supported the cause in other ways, and I have others that I can't get to on paper, but I know they served. I, I have one ancestor at least who was a loyalist. And uh, but he changed sides and came over to the, the Patriot side later in the war. That's actually, I think, one of my upcoming books I'm going to write is going to be about him. It would be a pretty interesting story to tell. But, yeah, I stumbled across it in my ancestral research and and I've kind of tapped my own ancestry out these days. That's why I spent a lot of time helping other folks find their Patriots and getting them involved in, in Sons of the American Revolution. That, that, that takes up a, l a little bit of my time on occasion. Well, I'm going to ask you about those 23 other uh, members of the family. Uh, did they all derive from uh, the, the, the original ancestor that you discovered? And the reason I'm asking that uh, for the folks listening, as you know, and we may talk about Colonel uh, Stephen Trigg in just a moment, uh, I'm, there are there are offspring, uh, there are uh, siblings, there are other members of the family, but as far as we know, in my family, uh, he was not married uh, and did not have children. So your twenty three is really quite an addition to that original ancestor. How, how did you put all that together? Well, actually, they come from all different branches of my tree. Some of those are in my mom's family. Some are in my dad's. You know, if you, if you think back 
it's almost uh, it's not you double in growth as you get back into into great 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 grandparents. You have a lot of them, and so um, the the pool. If you get back to about a sixth great grandfather, there there I can't remember if you have sixty four or one hundred and twenty eight of those. I can't remember, mm-hmm. um, but you know there's so much potential there for discovery. It's just a matter of so no, they're not all connected to that. The only connection is me actually. Um, but they come from all deep different branches of the of the family tree. And most people, I've only had one person I've helped do research that I have not been able to find a Revolutionary War connection for that person. Everyone else, um, I, I've been able to, to, to find someone that was involved in some capacity in the American Revolution. So most of us have those roots. Um, um, it just depends. You know, of course, some have more recent immigrants. Uh, um, some uh, some people of African descent, obviously because of records and slavery and slave ownership, and, you know, there's not much record of things there at all, but we also know that people of color, uh, participated in the American revolution and, and, um, and, and are more and more being recognized these days as those records are being discovered. And I think that's some pretty powerful and extremely interesting information that's coming to light with the historical study these days. How are those uh, people of color identified in a way that you know uh, that they were black, white, Native American? Uh, are there notations uh, in their records? There are. There are. It just depends on the locale. Um, I know that um, Rhode Island had an entire regiment made up of men of African descent uh, in the Southern Theater. Um, in Southern Theater, you know, in the Carolinas and Georgia, Sometimes um, um, slaves went to war with their owners. We know that this is a fact. Um, and so it just depends that the, the records are spotty, to say the least. And, and, and in reality, though, we could, you know, you could never prove it on paper. Um, but there, there, were, there were no doubt uh, people of, of color that suffered and, and endured great hardship because of the conflict of the American Revolution, because of where they were and, and, and their locale and what they were caught up in. And there's just, you know, that's all been lost to time. There, there's no record of that whatsoever. So that's why there's the, the study, the depth of it continues as people dig and look for those records and find uh, things buried away in archives here and there and family records new stuff comes to light all the time. Uh, tell me a little bit about Kentucky's place uh, at that time uh, uh, before and during uh, the war effort. Well, most all of the settlers on the Kentucky frontier would generally be considered Patriots of the Revolution, because the, most of them helped defend or man the frontier forts against not so much the British as it was against their Native American allies. There was some British, some Canadian involvement, but but mostly against the Shawnee and, and similar uh, tribes that were allied uh, with the British. And so uh, I think more on the Kentucky frontier, it was more a case of just trying to survive and 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 to hack out a, a life in the wilderness, you know, to protect home more than anything. Um, of course, when George Rogers Clark took his Virginia army and invaded the Northwest, went into the Illinois country, into Kaskaskia, and, and of course, at Vincennes, the Battle of Fort Sackville, uh, all, all, all of that came through the falls of the Ohio, you know, what is, you know, what is now Louisville. So um, in, in some ways, you know, the, the war moved a little bit north and west even of Kentucky, 
Um, but it was it wasn't so you wouldn't find battlefields with red coats lined up against blue coat uh, Continental Army soldiers. That did not happen in Kentucky. But what you did have were were um, pioneers, you know, some commissioned officers and their little local militia armies who 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 fought against the the allies of the British and defended their homes and defended their lands and and you know truly helped establish what we know as as Kentucky today. Um, of course, most of those most of those villages and townships and forts were all private ventures. You know, they were just people. They were kind of in violation. You know, British law didn't didn't want them coming over the mountains, and yet they did so anyway. And and then there was the Transylvania uh, purchase, you know, that opened up the Cumberland Gap and, of course, into Boonesboro and all, all those places that we, we know so much about. You know, there was actually only one Fort Jefferson, which was in what's now Ballard County, right on the banks of the Mississippi. That is the only government-sanctioned settlement in Kentucky during that period that was in 1780 and and it folded and, and was abandoned by 1781 after it came under siege and uh, by the Chickasaw Nation which was allied with the British and and there was great hardship and privation there so uh, yeah the, the conflict was pretty widespread Kentucky was a dangerous place to be <laughs> in 1777 they called it the bloody sevens I mean there was a lot of a lot of fighting, a lot of killing and death on on this Kentucky frontier. So, yeah, it, it it was a dangerous place to be. It was a it took a particularly bold and strong sort of folk uh, to come here and and survive here. Yeah, some of the other settlement areas or uh, fortresses, and I'm I'm thinking of of, of uh, Boonesboro and. Um, and the uh, Harrodsburg, Fort Harrod, and that, that, that Logan Fort, Logan. right? Yes. Were they? Um, you, you said that uh, Fort Jefferson was the only government sanctioned. What, what, what was the difference in these other settlements and and Fort Jefferson? Well, all those, uh, most of those others came about through that Transylvania land purchase, which was later invalidated, and basically all those people lost their claims on that land. But it, that was just private citizens and groups coming in and, and starting a life in Kentucky. They later, you know, they later became, you know, came under the umbrella of Virginia government. Fort Jefferson was established uh, by George Rogers Clark. It, it was out of a direct action um, by Thomas Jefferson as the governor to establish a fort at the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. They wanted to control traffic on the Mississippi river. They wanted to, to control what could be brought up and down rivers for our supplies on, on the Western side of, of civilization. And so um, actually the Virginia government sought and, and obtained permission to place a fort there. The, the unfortunate part of that was that they, they asked the Cherokee and the Cherokee were cool with it, but they didn't own the land. So they really didn't care. They didn't, they failed to check with the Chickasaws and the Chickasaw nation did not appreciate settlement upon their lands. They're a very, uh, very strong tribe and a very warlike tribe. And, and so that eventually came under siege and, and, and held, they held out for as long as they could, but eventually that it was so far uh, out on the frontier and, and so uh, difficult um, to reach over land that it, they finally, it, it folded and, and everyone retreated back to the east. Now that uh, is in uh, Ballard, what is now uh, today Ballard County. 
Is there a, because I believe I've been uh, to one of those uh, confluences uh, in West Kentucky, is there a little town there where the fort it was? Is, it is very close to Wycliffe, Kentucky. Well, that's, yeah, that's where the, okay. South of the confluence, actually, because the lands flooded so badly up at the actual joining of the rivers, they couldn't place anything there. They had to come a few miles downstream. And so, um, and that, that, the original fort location is, is uh, you know in a very back it's not right where the there's a cross there the fort jefferson cross it's reasonably close to the site but that's not the exact site but it was in that general vicinity is there not something still remaining uh, of uh, or uh, a marker or something uh, that, that designates the spot of fort jefferson uh well i think the original spot is deep on private land um so um, that's not accessible, so there's nothing really there. But there are historical markers near it along the highway that kind of commemorates that location. And again, uh, that that's where the um, the Mississippi and what is it now? Tell me again on my geography. What what, what are the rivers that join there? Yeah, the Mississippi and the Ohio, right and there. Of course, in Illinois, Cairo, Illinois, is right there in that, in that little joining spot, so a little bit south of that. So basically, as far west in Kentucky as you can get without crossing the river. Yeah. Um, tell me about your, um, your Revolutionary War in a Trunk uh, presentation that you do for Kentucky Humanities and uh, uh, for our Speakers Bureau. And uh, how you sort of make this come alive, uh, sort of describe for us, if you will, on the podcast, what you do in person. Well, I, I, I obviously I have a trunk. I have an old wooden trunk my wife picked up at a little local shop. And in that trunk, I carry a pretty vast assortment of replica items uh, from the period. Of course, part of the presentation is myself. I come dressed out in uh, uh, Kentucky, Virginia, militia. Uh, outfit what a typical man would have worn during that time period. I wear all the all the bags and accoutrements. Uh, and in most schools in Kentucky, we have the laws here where I'm able to bring a flintlock weapon in and show kids how the weapon works. And and um, I bring other type of weaponry from the period. I bring different kind of canteens and and all the stuff that went in the the militia soldiers' haversack and his personal items. I also bring, um, I have toys from the period to show what kids played with. I have some of the educational materials from the period, different items of clothing and hats and, and things that were worn in the French area, a little, little to the north of us. Just a pretty big assortment. What I do is I use those things as just a springboard to introduce items and ask questions and interact with the audience and get them involved in the presentation. Whenever I do uh, talks in schools, if I have time in the class period, I usually like to dress up a couple of kids. I like to dress a boy or a girl with a hunting frock and, and uh, hats and stuff and have a little kind of a photo op. And, mm -hmm. and I actually have a little ponytail wig, uh, what, we, what was called a cue during the time. And I always surprise the boy with that. After they think, you know, I pull out the ponytail and put it on them and the kids just howl with laughter. They think it's hilarious. And, and so it's, it's a pretty interactive program and, and pretty adaptable to age groups as well. I, uh, I've spoken for historical societies at libraries. You know, I, I do grown up groups and all the way down. I've done this presentation for like third or fourth grade, just depending on the location. But in our schools here in Kentucky, mostly fifth grade and eighth grade, because that's the time period when they 
you know, they cover Revolutionary War and their social studies block during those two grades. So that's when I generally that that's the, the audience generally in Kentucky for 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 school groups. So, Jeff, I mentioned to you that uh, I have an ancestor in in my background and family. Um, you are down there in West Kentucky. Uh, uh, Trigg County is named after Colonel Stephen B. Trigg after he was uh, uh, after he was killed at the Battle of Blue Licks. Uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, your uh, and you belong to. It's named after Colonel Trigg, uh, the the society down there. So tell me what you know about Colonel Trigg and and uh, a little bit more about uh, the Battle of Blue Licks. Well, I should probably know more about Colonel Stephen Trigg than I do. Um, uh, I know that he was probably, I've read in a couple places that, uh, well, he was Lieutenant Colonel Trigg. He, he was probably one of the, he probably was the wealthiest man in the Kentucky frontier at the time. Uh, he was a land surveyor. He was an educated man. And, and that's kind of how he kind of rose in stature among the people here and was uh, obviously made an officer uh, in, in his local county uh, militia, but he was in that uh, that fateful group uh, that right after the siege at Bryan Station, uh, which is n- near Lexington, um, the group led by Colonel Trigg and Daniel Boone and a few others went in pursuit of the natives that had brought that fort under siege, and they walked into a bushwhack uh, there at, at the Blue Licks and. Many men lost their lives, including uh, Colonel Trigg. Israel Boone, the son of Daniel Boone, died there. And um, they, they didn't just die there, but it was a pretty horrific sight when they were able to reach it after, after the battle. You know, they had basically been, been dismembered and mutilated the bodies. They had to bury them all in a mass grave. And actually, the Sons of the American Revolution, we hold a commemoration there at that mass grave site in August every year uh, during the reenactment of the battle. Uh, weekend and to, to honor those who were slain there and and who fought and one of you know it's it's often touted as the last battle of the American Revolution that's not quite true um, it was one of the one of the later ones certainly and it was actually a battle that occurred after the cessation of major conflict in the American Revolution because Cornwallis had already surrendered uh, at Yorktown uh, but that kind of didn't matter much on the frontier and um, so yeah. yeah tragic battle. Uh, and, and Colonel Trigg is a, uh, a little known hero uh, of Kentucky history. And, and so we like to try to try to, you know, bring his role to life as much as we can by honoring him, by being a chapter called by his name, obviously living in a county that's named after him. Exactly. And we appreciate that so much. I can tell you that from uh, family members. Tell us uh, what. Um you know and and um uh, what uh, we think others should know about the daughters of the american revolution and the sons of the american revolution and um how significant they were at one time uh, in this country and in this state and frankly uh the dar and i'm i'm assuming the sar too are still uh, vital they still do um philanthropy work. Uh, they still hold meetings. Uh, and I'm going to also assume uh, still pretty active chapters in certain areas of the country. Oh, gosh, yes. Both organizations are, are extremely active. Uh, DAR is a little well known, I think, than, than SAR just because they're a bigger organization. But both of us, we're both lineage organizations, which means that all the members have to have to prove their ancestry um, 
in a documentary fashion back to at least one uh, patriot uh, of the American Revolution. That could be in, in different forms. It could be as a soldier or officer in the army or militia, but it could also be someone who provided uh, material aid for the effort or paid certain taxes for the effort or, or held civic positions and community leadership or committees of safety um, or served as, or pa even pastors and preachers who pe preach patriotic sermons are recognized as being patriots of the revolution. And so, yeah, very, very active and vital. Kentucky has one of the most active societies. In fact, I am proud to proclaim that for uh, several years now, the Colonel Stephen Trink chapter has been one of the most active chapters in the nation. Uh, we, we've won the President's Cup Award several times for, for having the most comprehensive um, set of activities and events as a chapter. So we're, we're very active, especially in Kentucky. Um, but anyone, you know, we like, we, we love to connect people. I have two grandsons, uh, both who are, are under age four and both are already members of the Sons of the American Revolution. They participate. <laughs> They do. My, my grandson, Jackson, he, he, he melts hearts every time he shows up in a militia outfit with his little tricorn hat on. He is he's probably the most photographed kid at, in, in the SAR in Kentucky. But, um, um, yeah, we like to we the thing is, uh, D.A.R. does a lot of philanthropy work and, and a lot of thing, things that S.A.R. kind of doesn't do. We, we do things like that. But we're uh, we like to bring history to life. We do color guard march and parades we host we host grave markings which are military funerals for revolutionary war soldiers where we mark their graves and and hold ceremonies in revolutionary war attire uh, at the grave sites we do commemorative events uh, of course it's fourth of july week and um on thursday i will be up on a platform down here at the west katie's park and the colonel stephen trigg chapter will host the annual reading of the entire text of the Declaration of Independence. And that's one of our favorite events. Uh, just the whole community turns out, hundreds of people come for it. Um, and it's really dramatic and we have a lot of fun and people stick around for photographs afterwards. And, and so we, we like to try to connect people in a tangible way with their history. So it's not just words on a page. It's not just, you know, in history in school, I remember sometimes I felt like I was memorizing a few too many dates and events. Uh, history is about real people and real things and not just about the locations and the dates upon which they occurred. So living history is a tremendous part of what we do. You were telling me about a couple of dates, uh, including the activity that you just described. Is that going to be held on uh, the 4th of July? And what's the location again? Um, well, ours will be right here in Katy's in Trick County. Um, and that'll be 10 o'clock on July 4th down at the, our city park down by the Little River. But it's going on a lot of places. I know our uh, our new chapter, we have a Captain Virgil McCracken chapter in Paducah that's doing the same thing. I know that in Princeton, the uh, Captain William Prince chapter is doing a declaration reading. And so there, there are readings, uh, probably a lot of Sons of the American Revolution chapters are hosting readings all over the Commonwealth on that day. And if they're not... Uh, they ought to be thinking about it because it's a great outreach event to, to get really to get people turned on. You know, it's the perfect time to connect people with uh, with the great movement of independency and, and, and our founding fathers and all the risks that they took in order to start this fantastic nation. And then on August 17th uh, this year, uh, this August uh, 2019, uh, you do. Um, well, just tell us about what goes on uh, 
up the road at the at the battleground, uh, the Battle of Blue Licks. Well, the the park there, um, it's a state historical park. Um, they do a reenactment on the weekend closest to the actual battle date, which was I think it was August eighteenth, in seventeen eighty two. I might be a day or two off. Um, so they do it in conjunction with that. They do a reenactment, and so they have sutlers and. And they have uh, battles in the afternoon on Saturday and Sunday and just different events that go on throughout the day. We always hold our uh, summer Sons of the American Revolution meeting there in conjunction with that. And then we do a commemorative ceremony. It's normally been in the afternoons, but this year it will be at 10 o'clock in the morning. And it will be at the marker out along the highway that, that commemorates the mass grave. And so we, we read off the names of all the men who died there. And we toll a bell in their memory, and then we do flintlock salutes. We present colors. We generally have a pretty big color guard for that, and then it's very well attended. So that's just um, just a way for us to commemorate the one really major battle of the American Revolution that occurred within the boundaries of what is you know modern-day Kentucky. Jeff, um, final question, and this is one— um, of just your own thoughts, your your love of uh, this period of time in our history. And uh, the question is, what would you want people to know about um, the Revolutionary War and the sacrifice uh, and the, uh, the, the loss of life uh, that people went through? What, what is the symbolism that you want to leave people with? Oh, gosh. You know, I... That's a tough, uh, that, that's a loaded question. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I guess it's, you know, you know, I write, I write books, I write novels about the American Revolution and, and kind of my, uh, the, the stories that I write actually, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, Bill, but I write about my ancestors and my wife's ancestors and I, I take all these factual people and stories and then I do all the research and then I bring them to life. And, and I, I want people to connect with, to understand that these were, you know, it wasn't all, you know, just red, white, and blue and glory and flags waving. There was, there was suffering. It was ordinary people who risked everything and they suffered and they starved and they bled and they died. You know, my wife and I would go to Valley Forge almost every summer. Uh, We take part in events there. You know, there were, you know, we talk about World War II and the greatest generation, and they were, but, you know, there was a great generation. I mean, we're talking about men and women who rebelled against the most powerful nation, the most powerful army in the universe at the time, and stood up to just absolute tyranny and, and relentless taxation to say, no, we're not going to stand for this. We will be on our own, and, and we're willing to fight for that. And um, I mean, it was a tough time. It was a brutal time. Um, so much has been, it seems to be, I think, maybe sanitized over time. You know, the further we get away from real events, the more romantic, romanticized that things become. And, and we just need to remember that this, this was real. And, and, and I fear we take it for granted sometimes. So there are people who, they didn't just live for our country, but they suffered and bled and died and hungered for our, our country. And and they at least deserve the commemoration that, that we can render, especially on Independence Day. It's not just about hot dogs and, and, and baseball. It's about the birth of a nation that I'm still convinced, and there are people that seem to be down on America a lot these days, but I'm convinced is the, the, the greatest nation, um, 
the greatest source of freedom that this world has ever known. And um, I don't know. I got, I, that's probably a long-winded answer. But you got to remember, I'm a Baptist preacher. I, I do that on occasion. <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you as a guest on the podcast. You are a uh, excellent uh, representative uh, for uh, Kentucky Humanities and our Speakers Bureau, and and also for your your passion and your fervor. Uh, for uh, what this country uh, is all about. Uh, there are many, many millions of people who will agree with you that uh, we are the greatest nation and that uh, our, our best days are ahead of us. Um, I just want to thank you so much for, um, for supporting Kentucky Humanities uh, as a member of the Speakers Bureau and for uh, delivering this message uh, that you do uh, all across the state of Kentucky and beyond. So, Thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I apologize for my gravelly voice today. I'm in the midst of a summer cold trying to fight that off. But, uh, man, it has just been a joy to, to talk with you today, and, and I'm most grateful. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.